Hi everybody, it's Susie McMahon, owner of Luxurious Journeys and Lux Low Country Travel, and I'm the host of a pretty darn unique virtual book club. Most of my podcasts over the past year have been the interviews that I have had with our featured authors. What we do is each month we will feature an author and their novel, and then the following month I will do a live stream interview with the author and facilitate questions that have been sent to me by our club members. And what's so exciting is each and every month the featured author recommends a future featured author for our book club, and we usually get to introduce them as a surprise guest. On today's podcast, we meet with William Kent Kruger. William Kent Kruger was raised in the Cascade Mountains of Oregon. He briefly attended Stanford University before being being kicked out for radical activities. After that, he logged timber, worked construction, tried his hand at freelance journalism, and eventually ended up researching child development at the University of Minnesota. He's been married for nearly 50 years to a marvelous woman who is a retired attorney, and he makes his home in St. Paul, a city he dearly loves. Kruger writes a mystery series set in the North Woods of Minnesota. His protagonist is Cork O'Connor, the former sheriff of Tamarack County and a man of mixed heritage, part Irish and part, I'm going to say it wrong, O-J-I-B-W-B. His work has received a number of awards, including the Minnesota Book Award, the Loft McKnight Fiction Award, the Anthony Award, the Barry Award, the Dilly Award, and the Friends of American Writers Prize. His last nine novels were all New York Times bestsellers. Ordinary Grace, his standalone novel published in 2013, received the Edgar Award given by the Mystery Writers of America in recognition for the best novel published in that year. The companion novel, This Tender Land, was published in September of 2019 and spent nearly six months on the New York Times bestseller list. He wants us to call him Kent. The book we're talking about today with Kent, we featured This Tender Land. I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I hope you enjoy today's podcast. Are we talking This Tender Land tonight? Yes. We are talking This Tender Land tonight, and hi, everybody in the Virtual Book Club. Um, We are so excited to have William Kent Kruger join us again this evening, and Melissa my group expert is here tonight to help me facilitate questions with, can I call you Kent? That's what I heard last time. Yeah, everybody calls me Kent. Okay, I just wanna ask permission. So I wanted to give a couple of um, seconds here for people to join in. So I'm gonna go ahead and start just reading your bio if I could Kent, on the back of this tender land. William Kent Kruger is the New York Times bestselling author of Ordinary Grace winner of the Edgar Award for Best Novel, not too shabby there, as well as 19 acclaimed books in the Cork O'Connor Mystery Series, including Desolation Mountain and Lightning Strike. He lives in the Twin Cities with his family, and you can learn more about William Kent Kruger at williamkentkruger.com. And everyone, I hope you have finished this treat, this treasure, this tender land. And my very first question to welcome you here tonight, 
um, is I heard that you like to have donuts and chocolate milk as a treat, Kent, when you pop, when you send in um, a work. Is that true or false? Well, I have donuts and chocolate milk at the drop of a hat. <laughs> it's my go-to comfort uh, comfort feed. Uh, so yeah, that's 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 pretty much true. <laughs> but I have champagne when the book finally comes out. Oh, what kind of champagne do you like? Uh, anything that's cheap. Uh, I, I've I've really become um, accustomed to. Prosecco. I just really love the like sparkling wine. It's just very nice and light and festive. Well, I'm going to, um, it looks like people are joining us. Everybody, please comment in the comment fields where you're watching from. Um, so our author can know the, the, um, the geographic spread that we have reached tonight. And I want to say happy holidays to everybody. Thanks for joining us tonight. Melissa, I'm going to turn to you so I can see what questions are coming in the comments. Can you please um, ask our featured author, Kent, a question? Thanks. Absolutely. My pleasure. And I loved the book. Thank you. Um, the storytelling within the story was also amazing. Do you use that style in other books that you've written? Uh, the first thing I want to say is welcome, everybody who's uh, joined us this evening. I hope I'm not the only one out there who drinks wine when we discuss books. All right. <laughs> it was pretty much unique to this tender land because Odie's a storyteller. Um, Odie, Odie is, uh, my, is probably the favorite character I've created in any of my writing uh, because he's so much like me. He's a storyteller, as I am a storyteller. And so when I created Odie and I began thinking about this tender land, I knew Odie was going to tell stories. Um, I wasn't quite sure what what the stories would be about, what their purpose necessarily would be, but I knew we would tell stories. And as I wrote the novel, um, it began uh, to be clear to me the kinds of stories Odie needed to tell. So, no, it's pretty much unique to this particular uh, creation. Thank you. I, I um, thank you, Melissa. What I loved about reading your word, your words, your your work is how lyrical your words are. The choice, the sentences, the structure. It almost to me, it almost feels like you're listening, you're processing a song. And um, started listening to some of the audio version as well, and I got the same feeling um, by your narrator um, of the novel. And there's a lot of music involved with the harmonica playing and every time they kind of gather in community. What influence um, in your life brings out that music piece? Well, let's talk about the lyrical language first. And the music, mm -hmm. the music piece is almost a separate element. Um, mm -hmm. My father was a high school English teacher. And when I was quite young, um, I learned the power that that words have. Words have words can work magic. Words used correctly can work magic. They're very powerful. Um, and so when I'm writing a story, I try to pay careful attention to the word choices, uh, to the images I'm creating, to how I create those images, because I do want it to feel lyrical, particularly with or, or with uh, this tender land, because. I, I, I viewed it as an epic novel. It was my it was my uh, answer to Homer's Odyssey and Mark Twain's uh, Huckleberry Finn. Uh, and so I wanted it to be lyrical. 
Um, the music really, I, the music in my background came from my mother. Uh, my mother uh, was quite a, an accomplished musician. She had a beautiful ethereal soprano voice and quite a way with the keyboard. So our house was always filled with music as I was growing up. And, um, and so I know that I also understand the power that music wields um, when it comes to human beings. It's so elemental to who we are. You know, we, um, we fall in love to music. We get married to music. We're buried to music. We march away to war to music. But what would a movie be without a musical score, right? So, uh, so as I was thinking about this story and the part that Odie was going to play um, in this journey, I knew he was going to be the guy who would keep the vagabond spirits up when things got dark. And I knew he was going to do it in one way. He was going to tell stories. Um, but when I thought about, okay, what else could he use to keep their spirits up? It, you know, it was a no-brainer music. Uh, and so when I thought, okay, he's a musician. Well, if he's a musician, what reasonably could he take on a journey like this? <laughs> a harmonica, you know? <laughs> and it's so American, so American. And so then I set about and just had a delightful time choosing the tunes that Odie would play across the course of that summer. Thank you so much for that. Melissa, your turn. So playing off of that question, pun intended, <laughs> do you listen to music while you're writing? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> nope. <laughs> I, listen to, uh, I listen to music all the time, but not while I'm writing. While I'm writing, I'm really focused on the writing. Um, before the pandemic forced us to shelter in place, I did all of my creative writing in coffee shops, noisy places, uh, because I like that white noise. It's, it's kind of how I developed my process early on. Um, and so, you know, listening to music would be pointless because you can't hear. Um, and when I'm at home, uh, you know, during the pandemic now, I've had to substitute the kitchen counter for, uh, for the coffee shop. Um, but, uh, but I don't listen to, to music. It, as soon as I feel that the environment is safe, I'll go back to the coffee shops because when I write in the morning, it's just way too quiet here. <laughs> I, um, I had noticed, uh, Melissa, I believe you posted Kent's blog about, um, acceptance during 2020 and the actual lockdown and, and how you, you found your bike again. Um, and did different things. Talk to us a little bit about what kept your spirits up in 2020 camp. And currently we're still, we're moving into 2022. Yeah, we thought we would be out of it by now, but it looks like we're going to be in it uh, a good deal longer. Well, first of all, I'm very fortunate in the woman I, who, who, who ex accepted my, uh, my invitation to be my, my, my wife. <laughs> um, it's very easy to be uh, locked down with my wife, Diane. She's just a delightful soul. We've been married. We've known each other well over 50 years. We've been married for 48 of those. So um, so we're really comfortable with each other. That helps a whole lot. Um, and she helps a whole lot just keeping my spirits up because she's a very delightful soul. But, you, you, you know, you put your finger on one of the things, Susie. Um, I, I began biking in earnest. Um, and so I've been out there. When it's not um, prohibitively cold, which is about 40 degrees, um, I'll uh, I'll be out on my bike. And it just being out in the open air, being out in the sunshine, 
being out on trails that lead me through the, the woods lands that we have here or along the Mississippi River. I live in St. Paul. Um, so the Mississippi River, you know, divides uh, uh, St. Paul and, and Minneapolis. It's just a beautiful corridor. So I bike there and that has helped tremendously. But, you know, the other thing that's kept my spirits up is, is that I have really bent to the work of writing. In, in across my whole life, whenever something in my life has um, become rocky, disturbing, um, I have always found that if I turn to my writing, that really is great comfort to me in the end. That's beautiful. I think that um, all of us, a lot of us have turned back to nature um, and spending time, whether it's hiking um, along a creek here in Park, Colorado for me, or I just spent over a week down on Fripp Island, South Carolina, and every day, I multiple times a day, drawn to the shore, to the beach just to walk, whether it was sunrise or sunset, and just to see the beauty of it every day being its own unique um, presence. It's a unique gift. And um, that's what keeps me going. It's time to go back you know, to the beach. There's, there's not a drop of snow here in Parker, nothing. And all through this oh, week, it's going to be 65. Yeah, and Christmas. you know, you in Colorado, you really need that rain, that snow, that moisture there in the Rockies. <laughs> I'll be praying for <laughs> you. <laughs> Thank you. Know, you. One, of the, one of the great joys I discovered when I took to my bike was I discovered my the area I live, the whole neighborhood in a different way because I've always been driving and, and going too, you know, too quickly to really notice all of the, the, the little gems uh, that are, you know, inset in the neighborhood. So I have enjoyed that as a result of the biking tremendously. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Melissa, you do a lot of outdoor activity too. What have you been doing lately to keep, keep your spirits up? Yes. Yeah, so I love being outside, even if it's just sitting on my porch in the in the in the rocker in the sun as it's setting. Um, but uh, doing a lot of yoga. And that was my next question, because occasionally in the Shavasana, the last the final resting pose, I have poetry come to my mind. And so I'm like, ah, I need to like get this thought out. So when you're riding, as thoughts come, are you taking a recorder or a pen and tablet or anything, or are you able to hold it until you get to your destination? Generally speaking, yes. I don't. Uh, I don't take post-it notes with me or a recorder. <laughs> I don't talk into my into my phone while I'm biking. But uh, but that's one of the things I also love about biking is is that my imagination is always at work. And so I do get some. Um, really wonderful ideas as I'm uh, as I'm out there on the road. Um, typically, because I've been a storyteller for so very long, I'm able to keep those things in my head. But every once in a while, I get home and I go, oh, crap, what was that I thought about? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, darn it. Yeah. <laughs> um, Speaking of, we talked a little bit earlier about the influence of your mom with music, and you mentioned about your dad. Um, I, it's my understanding that, that he might have influenced your choices of what you read as a child and then throughout your life. Do you think that was a direct correlation to what you do now for a living? Yeah, probably, um, mm -hmm. because my, my father particularly both of my parents read to to me and my siblings when we were growing up when we were young 
Um, so, I, you know, I listened to stories from a very early age, and for whatever reason, I always wanted to be one of the storytellers. Um, later on, when I was a little bit older, my father insisted that when I was 18, he insisted I read Ernest Hemingway, and I fell madly in love with Hemingway. Tried for a very long time to write like Hemingway. But just uh, my father's appreciation for literature, for what a great story offers, was certainly influential in, um, in, in what I chose to do eventually. You know, I write mysteries. I cut my teeth on mysteries. Mm -hmm. uh, but for those of you out there, I've never read one of my mysteries. I'm, uh, I'm the author of the New York Times bestselling Cork O'Connor mystery series. <laughs> and uh, even when I write a mystery, I, I'm always, always in my, my head is my father's voice telling me, pay attention to the language, um, create a story that's meaningful, that does more than just, you know, offer a mystery, make the reader work a little bit, make the reader think a little bit. At the end of the story, make the reader feel something that they, they hadn't felt before. So yeah, my dad's influence, I'm sure, was uh, tremendously important in shaping me as a writer. Wonderful. It's, it's, so, it's so interesting to go back and look at childhood and what leads you to your certain path. Melissa, you have a question for Kent? I do. So going back to the book, um, the orphan status and adoptions. Um, I know that period of time was so difficult for families and it has made, you know, genealogy research on my mother's side of the family difficult. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. During the Great Depression, uh, it's estimated that there were somewhere between two and, uh, 200 and 300,000, 200,000 and 300,000 uh, children out there on the road, separated from their families, trying to make their way alone because the the depression, uh, yeah, the Great Depression uh, just shattered families. Um, my mother um, was born in Ellendale, South Dakota, to a family who who really couldn't. They had already enough uh, mouths to feed. They really couldn't feed her as well, and so she was eventually sent to live with a distant relative who was a little better off and adopted finally by that relative. Uh, but that was not an unusual story at all during the Great Depression. Um, I'm going to recommend a book to your readers. I don't know. Maybe it's a book you've already done for your book club. But there's a terrific book out there called Before We Were Yours that speaks directly to uh, a, a true situation that existed in Tennessee, um, a situation in which children were actually taken from their homes poor children taken from their homes and then adopted by wealthier families. So that was not, um, that wasn't a great time to be a child, let me tell you. Particularly if you have a, had a family who was in, in great need, dire need, and that was everywhere. Yeah. Thank you. But you know, I have to say that the, uh, the Native American boarding school in which the Odian's brother um, lived, and uh, and Moses and and Emmy, that was really not an orphanage. Those children all had, generally speaking, had parents. They were they were taken from their families because it was a government program. The government wanted uh, to well felt it was in the best interest, ostensibly felt it was in the best interests of the children, not to, to be raised in their on the reservation or in their home environment. Uh, hubris white hubris. 
there's so many different emotions that um, a reader that I, as a reader, um, experienced going through this Tenderland. And I, um, I mentioned this to Kent earlier, everybody watching, that I read this comment in another virtual or a different book club. And it was um, saying that that wonderful feeling or the joy that you experience when you read an author for the first time and you want to go read every single word that that author has written. And Kent, I am now um, one of your number one fans. And I, I wanted to ask you, would you recommend I go back and read Ordinary Grace or jump over into the mystery novels? Which would you recommend to me? Read Ordinary Grace. It's a companion novel to this tender land. Not because they deal with the same characters at the same time frame, but they deal with many of the same themes. Ordinary, for those of you out there who know nothing about Ordinary Grace, it's uh, set in the summer of 1961 in uh, the same area where the, the Vagabonds Traverse, the Minnesota River Valley. It takes place in the town of New Bremen where the Vagabonds spend some time. It's the story of a Methodist minister whose beloved child is murdered. That's you know the compelling mystery component. But at heart, it's really the story of what this terrible tragedy does to this family's faith, their relationships with one another, and eventually the entire fabric of, of the small town in which they live. Um, I think it's a wonderful story, and it, it goes so well with uh, this tender land. Um, and then if you like those, yeah, leap into my Cork O'Connor series, <laughs> definitely. All right. I think there's there's a lot of reading involved with that, right? What's the last most recent... It, Most um, recently, is, uh, yeah, is uh, a book called Lightning Strike, and it's a really a, it's a great place to begin the series because it's a prequel to the series. You don't need to know any. There it is over this. Oops, this show oh, right. <laughs> in the blue. Uh, <laughs> I know it's office that was in there. Um, it's a prequel, so you don't need to know anything at all about uh, about my protagonist Cork O'Connor or anybody any of the other central characters in this series to enjoy this book. And if you like this one, then yeah, start at the beginning of the series because it's a series. The eighteen books in the series span uh, fifteen years of the lie in the lives of the characters involved. So if you begin at the beginning with a book called Iron Lake and read through it in order, it's a it's a richer experience because you're watching the characters age and change, the relationships change, their understanding of the world changes. It's just a much richer experience if you start it that way. Thank you for that. One of our readers from um, Texas has a question for you, Kent. Um, it, she says, it really bothered me that Moses had his tongue cut out. Why not have him have a congenital defect, for example, instead of this violent act? Question mark. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm like, talking to Siri. Yeah. Oh, I understand. I mean, that's a horrible thing. But Moses represents a culture who had their voice, their tongue cut out. They were a culture with no voice. Uh, and it was our government that had cut it out. From uh, the late 1880s until 1978, almost 100 years, if you were a Native American parent and the government came to you and said, we're going to take your children away, and we're going to cart them to a boarding school hundreds of miles distant, you will see them infrequently or maybe even never again. There was absolutely nothing you could do about that. It was the law that you had to give the government your children. There were people who had no voice. It had been cut out. Their tongues had been cut out. So that's that's Moses' reason, the raison d'être for Moses' situation. It's heavy. Yeah, it's heavy, and we um, we think about all the 
protections we have in our government now for children, and I'm sure they're still not 100% taking care of everyone, but um, it's important for us to look back at our history, um, I think, because that's how we we learn how far we have come in a lot of different ways. Um, so normally on our virtual book club meetings, around 20 minutes into the meeting, what we do is we have a surprise guest come on. And that surprise guest is a recommended future featured author from our current featured author, which is Kent, obviously. Um, he is going to tell us an, a little bit about um, a woman that we're going to feature later in 2022 because of the holiday week. She was not able to join us tonight. But William, um, Kent, can you tell me a little bit about Anne? Um, is it Weiss Garber? I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Weiss Garber. Okay. Yeah, uh, I've known Anne for a good number of years now. We first met at the uh, South Dakota Festival of Books in Deadwood, South Dakota. We were on a panel <laughs> together, and Anne just blew me away uh, with her the, the the beauty of how she expressed herself on the panel. Um, and so I had to read her books and I was just, um, I fell in love with who she is as a storyteller. She typically writes historical novels. The book that I've recommended for your group is a book called The Glove Maker. And it's a story set in uh, a small town in Utah, a small Mormon town in Utah uh, in the 1800s. And it is um, just a it's, a, it's a, it's a real town. Uh, and the situation that it describes is a real situation. And Annis, who is just a marvelous researcher, um, has in her research and through her research been able to create, recreate the time and the town and the issues that face the Mormon community. She's not a Mormon herself, but the issues that face the Mormon community um, at that point in time. It is a compelling read beautifully crafted and I couldn't recommend it highly enough. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. She and I have corresponded and um, she is, wanted me to say hello to you and thank you for the recommendation. Um, we as a book club will be reading her novel, The Glove Maker, either in June or July of 2022. I'm amazed that we have um, a lineup already that far in the future, but due to, due to the nature and the generosity of all the authors that participate, um, we always have um, material to focus on. And, and I love the uniqueness that we're actually getting referred to the next author by someone that we've already interacted with. Um, Kent, what are your plans for the holiday? Are you staying close to home? Or are you traveling at all? Or maybe just out on the bike? It's probably too cold for the bike right now. Too cold for the bike. In fact, let's see. Right now, it's about 18 degrees above zero here. We had we had a little bit of snow for the last couple of days, so there's still, there's snow on the ground. Just really not good biking. Although you know, I have seen bikers out there. Those who are really dedicated bikers. <laughs> um, I try not to feel guilty. Uh, no, we uh, we traveled a little bit uh, for Thanksgiving. We went down to see family in Oklahoma. Um, which is where my father is is from and where my uh, cousins still reside. But we're sticking close to home for Christmas. And uh, then I have some traveling ahead of me um, in this, this winter and spring. Good, good. Well, I, I believe that we have 
good things in place in the travel industry, being a travel counselor who has traveled a lot. Um, I think that if we were able to follow the, the um, policies and the procedures that we follow when we're traveling um, everywhere, we might not still be where we are. Um, a question that I had for you is um, if you were to give one and only one book to your wife that she has not read, as a gift, what would that be and why for this holiday season? This holiday season? Yes. Um, if you were well, giving it to her for a, yeah, a Christmas <laughs> gift or whatever. Um, that she has not read. Boy, we read a lot of the same books. <laughs> you know, the one that I might give her, but she would probably never read, it's the, it's the book that turned me on to the power of a great story. Do, do you have just a minute? Let me tell you a story. Absolutely. I, uh, this is a story I love telling to, uh, to, to library groups. When I was 12 years old, um, uh, I decided I was going to get my reading merit badge. I was a Boy Scout. And that summer, I decided I was going to get my reading merit badge. I was living in a little town in Ohio at that point. So I went to the librarian, our local librarian, made the arrangements. And when the time came, I showed up to do my duty. This was, you know, long before they had uh, computerized check-in and check-out. So do you remember that little envelope thing that used to be glued inside the back cover of yes. every book? And it had the checkout slip in it. So what they did was they put me to work date stamping the returned books. They gave me this black ink pad and a changeable rubber date stamp. And so for the first hour, I was there it was sort of ka-chunk, 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 ka-chunk. <laughs> and after an hour of that, the librarian walked my way and proceeded to ask me a very librarian-esque question. She said, Kent? what do you like to read? <laughs> truth was, I like to read comic books, but I didn't want to tell her that. So, you know, I considered lying to her, but there was that whole, a scout is trustworthy thing going on. So I told her the truth. And without batting an eye, she said to me, have you ever read The Count of Monte Cristo? I took that that great Dumas classic home and, uh, and, a couple of weeks later, I returned and checked out the Three Musketeers. And after that, it was the man in the Iron Mask. And when, when I'd read everything our little library had by Dumas, I asked her, what should I read next? And this wonderful librarian turned me on to H.G. Wells and Jules Verne and Arthur Conan Doyle and Jack London and, and Robert Louis Stevenson, all these all these uh, writers who, who created stories that were perfect for capturing a boy's heart and a boy's imagination. So I might give my wife the Count of Monte Cristo, because I'm absolutely certain that's one she's never read. Would she read it? I loved that story, and I love your um, your explanation of the library books and how we used to do that. I remember that, and I also still remember the card catalog. I mean, is the Dewey? Oh, yeah. Are they? Do they exist anywhere? I don't know. Because yeah, every I mean, library I go to is all modern. Yeah, the Dewey, they're still, you know, on the shelves according to the Dewey Decimal System. Good luck finding a card catalog. It's all now uh, computerized. No, yeah. Well, Melissa, do you have any thought? I see that you've muted yourself. Do you have cat noise in the house or something? <laughs> I was just being quiet here. <laughs> just do you, have a, do you have a final question for Kent before we thank him for his time? I do. So did you um, discover any fun fact 
while writing this book? Yeah, actually, lots of them. But the one that uh, the one that sort of was the first that I I stumbled across, and then uh, and then proceeded to stumble across so many more were this. You know, back in the depression, people didn't have a lot of money, and uh, Seed companies and flower companies, these companies that made commodities that they put in these gigantic uh, sacks, you know, they began to become aware that women were making clothing out of the material, the sack material, sack dresses, essentially. But they wasn't just sack dresses. They made anything that you could make in terms of clothing out of these sacks. And do you know what? I, th I just think this was such a delightful thing. Do you know what those companies began doing? They began putting out these sacks in patterns so that so that when they were made into clothing, they were kind of fun to look at, you know? I just thought that was just a lovely thing for those companies to have done. That is a wonderful story. It is great. Thank you. Well, I just wanted to um, thank both um, our featured author, Kent Kruger, for his time. He joined us um, several weeks ago when Sally Hanley introduced you to us, and he's here again this evening. Melissa being my group expert and right-hand woman for our graphics that we've been trying to add to our Facebook pages here. Thank you, Melissa. And just a little piece of book club business I want everyone to know we're currently reading this month. Um, the Sweet Taste of Muscadines. I don't have the cover of the book with me tonight. I think I left it in South Carolina. And, um, and Pamela Terry is that author. Kent, I wish you a merry, merry Christmas. Um, good luck to you. I can't wait to read future works that you have gifted um, readers. And it's been an honor to meet you, sir. I've had a, just a delightful time this evening. And I just want to say blessings to one and all in this season of joy. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to sign off, everybody. Happy holidays. Thanks, Melissa. Thank you, Kent. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.